Chapter Five of The Warden. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Warden by Anthony Trollope. Chapter Five. Doctor Grantly visits the hospital. Though doubt and hesitation disturbed the rest of our poor warden, no such weakness perplexed the nobler breast of his son-in-law. As the indomitable cock preparing for the combat sharpens his spurs, shakes his feathers, and erects his comb, so did the archdeacon arrange his weapons for the coming war, without misgiving and without fear. That he was fully confident of the justice of his cause let no one doubt. Many a man can fight his battle with good courage, but with a doubting conscience. Such was not the case with Dr. Grantly. He did not believe in the gospel with more assurance than he did in the sacred justice of all ecclesiastical revenues. When he put his shoulder to the wheel to defend the income of the present and future precentors of Barchester, he was animated by as strong a sense of a holy cause as that which gives courage to a missionary in Africa, or enables a sister of mercy to give up the pleasures of the world for the wards of a hospital. He was about to defend the holy of holies from the touch of the profane, to guard the citadel of his church from the most rampant of its enemies, to put on his good armor in the best of fights, and secure, if possible, the comforts of his creed for coming generations of ecclesiastical dignitaries. Such a work required no ordinary vigor, and the archdeacon was therefore extraordinarily vigorous. It demanded a buoyant courage, and a heart happy in its toil, and the archdeacon's heart was happy, and his courage was buoyant. He knew that he would not be able to animate his father-in-law with feelings like his own, but this did not much disturb him. He preferred to bear the brunt of the battle alone, and did not doubt that the warden would resign himself into his hands with passive submission. "'Well, Mr. Chadwick,' he said, walking into the steward's office a day or two after the signing of the petition as commemorated in the last chapter. Anything from Cox and Cummins this morning? Mr. Chadwick handed him a letter, which he read, stroking the tight-gaitered calf of his right leg as he did so. Messrs. Cox and Cummins merely said that they had as yet received no notice from their adversaries, that they could recommend no preliminary steps, but that should any proceeding really be taken by the beadsman, it would be expedient to consult the very eminent Queen's Counsel, Sir Abraham Haphazard. "'I quite agree with them,' said Dr. Grantly, refolding the letter. "'I perfectly agree with them. Haphazard is no doubt the best man, a thorough churchman, a sound conservative, and in every respect the best man we could get. He's in the house, too, which is a great thing.' Mr. Chadwick quite agreed. You remember how completely he put down that scoundrel horseman about the Bishop of Beverley's income, how completely he set them all adrift in the Earl's case. Since the question of St. Cross had been mooted by the public, one noble lord had become the Earl par excellence in the doctor's estimation. How he silenced that fellow at Rochester. Of course we must have haphazard, and I'll tell you what, Mr. Chadwick, we must take care to be in time, or the other party will forestall us. With all his admiration for Sir Abraham, the doctor seemed to think it not impossible that the great man might be induced to lend his gigantic powers to the side of the church's enemies. 
Having settled this point to his satisfaction, the doctor stepped down to the hospital to learn how matters were going on there, and as he walked across the hollowed clothes and looked up at the ravens who cawed with a peculiar reverence as he wended his way, he thought with increased acerbity of those whose impiety would venture to disturb the goodly grace of cathedral institutions. And who has not felt the same? We believe that Mr. Horseman himself would relent, and the spirit of Sir Benjamin Hall give way, were those great reformers to allow themselves to stroll by moonlight around the towers of some of our ancient churches. Who would not feel charity for a prebendary when walking the quiet length of that long aisle at Winchester, looking at those decent houses, that trim grass plat, and feeling as one must the solemn, orderly comfort of the spot? Who could be hard upon a dean, while wandering round the sweet clothes of Hereford, and owing that in that precinct, tone and colour, design and form, solemn tower and storied window are all in unison and all perfect? Who could lie basking in the cloisters of Salisbury and gaze on Jewel's library and that unequalled spire, without feeling that bishops should sometimes be rich? The tone of our archdeacon's mind must not astonish us. It has been the growth of centuries of church ascendancy, and though some fungi now disfigure the tree, though there be much dead wood, for how much good fruit have we not to be thankful? Who, without remorse, can batter down the dead branches of an old oak, now useless but, ah, still so beautiful, or drag out the fragments of the ancient forest without feeling that they sheltered the younger plants, to which they are now summoned to give way in a tone so peremptory and so harsh. The archdeacon, with all his virtues, was not a man of delicate feeling, and after having made his morning salutations in the warden's drawing-room, he did not scruple to commence an attack on pestilent John Bold in the presence of Miss Harding, though he rightly guessed that the lady was not indifferent to the name of his enemy. "'Nellie, my dear, fetch me my spectacles from the back room,' said her father, anxious to save both her blushes and her feelings. Eleanor brought the spectacles while her father was trying, in ambiguous phrases, to explain to her too practical brother-in-law that it might be as well not to say anything about Bold before her, and then retreated. Nothing had been explained to her about Bold in the hospital, but with a woman's instinct she knew that things were going wrong. "'We must soon be doing something,' commenced the archdeacon, wiping his brows with a large, bright-coloured handkerchief, for he had felt busy and had walked quick, and it was a broiling summer's day. "'Of course you have heard of the petition.' Mr. Harding owned somewhat unwillingly that he had heard of it. "'Well!' The archdeacon looked for some expressions of opinion, but none coming, he continued— we must be doing something, you know. We mustn't allow these people to cut the ground from under us while we sit looking on. The archdeacon, who was a practical man, allowed himself the use of everyday expressive modes of speech when among his closest intimates, though no one could soar into a more intricate labyrinth of refined phraseology when the church was the subject, and his lower brethren were his auditors. The warden still looked mutely in his face, making the slightest possible passes with an imaginary fiddle-bow, and stopping, as he did so, sundry imaginary strings with the fingers of his other hand. T'was his constant consolation in conversational troubles. While these vexed him sorely, 
the passes would be short and slow and the upper hand would not be seen to work nay the strings on which it operated would sometimes lie concealed in the musician's pocket and the instrument on which he played would be beneath his chair but as his spirit warmed to the subject as his trusting heart looked to the bottom of that which vexed him would see its clear way out he would rise to a higher melody sweep the unseen strings with a bolder hand and swiftly fingering the cords from his neck down along his waistcoat and up again to his very ear create an ecstatic strain of perfect music audible to himself and to saint cecilia and not without effect i quite agree with cox and cummins continued the archdeacon they say we must secure sir abraham haphazard i shall not have the slightest fear in leaving the case in sir abraham's hands the warden played the slowest and saddest of tunes it was but a dirge on one string i think sir abraham will not be long in letting master bold know what he's about i fancy i hear sir abraham cross-questioning him at the common pleas the warden thought of his income being thus discussed his modest life his daily habits and his easy work and nothing issued from that single cord but a low wail of sorrow i suppose they've sent his petition up to my father the warden didn't know he imagined they would do so this very day what i can't understand is how you let them do it with such a command as you have in the place or should have with such a man as bunce i cannot understand why you let them do it do what asked the warden why listen to this fellow bold and that other low pettifogger finney and get up this petition too why didn't you tell bunce to destroy the petition well, that would have been hardly wise said the warden wise yes it would have been very wise if they'd done it among themselves i must go up to the place and answer it now i suppose it's a, it's a very short answer they'll get i can tell you but why shouldn't they petition doctor why shouldn't they responded the archdeacon in a loud brazen voice as though all the men in the hospital were expected to hear him through the walls why shouldn't they i'll let them know why they shouldn't by the by warden i'd like to say a few words to them altogether the warden's mind misgave him and even for a moment he forgot to play he by no means wished to delegate to his son-in-law his place and authority of warden he had expressly determined not to interfere in any step which the men might wish to take in the matter under dispute he was most anxious neither to accuse them nor to defend himself all these things he was aware the archdeacon would do in his behalf and that not in the mildest manner and yet he knew not how to refuse the permission requested i'd so much sooner rather remain quiet in the matter said he in an apologetic voice quiet said the archdeacon still speaking with his brazen trumpet do you wish to be ruined in quiet why if i'm to be ruined certainly nonsense warden i tell you something must be done we must act just let me ring the bell and send the men word that i'll speak to them in the quad mr harding knew not how to resist and the disagreeable order was given 
the quad as it was familiarly called was a small quadrangle open on one side to the river and surrounded on the others by the high wall of mr harding's garden by one gable end of mr harding's house and by the end of the row of buildings which formed the residences of the bedesmen it was flagged all around and the centre was stoned small stone gutters ran from the four corners of the square to a grating in the centre and attached to the end of mr harding's house was a conduit with four cocks covered over from the weather at which the old men got their water and very generally performed their morning toilet it was a quiet sombre place shaded over by the trees of the warden's garden on the side towards the river there stood a row of stone seats on which the old men would sit and gaze at the little fish as they flitted by in the running stream on the other side of the river was a rich green meadow running up to and joining the deanery and as little open to the public as the garden of the dean itself nothing therefore could be more private than the quad of the hospital and it was there that the archdeacon determined to convey to them his sense of their refractory proceedings the servant soon brought in word that the men were assembled in the quad and the archdeacon big with his purpose rose to address them well warden of course you're coming said he seeing that mr harding did not prepare to follow him i wish you'd excuse me said mr harding for heaven's sake don't let us have division in the camp replied the archdeacon let us have a long pull and a strong pull but above all a pull altogether come warden come don't be afraid of your duty mr harding was afraid he was afraid that he was being led to do that which was not his duty he was not however strong enough to resist so he got up and followed his son-in-law the old men were assembled in groups in the quadrangle eleven of them at least for poor old johnny bell was bedridden and couldn't come he had however put his mark to the petition as one of handy's earliest followers tis true he could not move from the bed where he lay tis true he had no friend on earth but those whom the hospital contained and of those the warden and his daughter were the most constant and most appreciated tis true that everything was administered to him which his failing body could require or which his faint appetite could enjoy but still his dull eye had glistened for a moment at the idea of possessing a hundred pounds a year to his own cheek as abel handy had eloquently expressed it and poor old johnny bell had greedily put his mark to the petition when the two clergymen appeared they all uncovered their heads handy was slow to do it and hesitated but the black coat and waistcoat of which he had spoken so irreverently in sculpit's room had its effect even on him and he too doffed his hat bunce advancing before the others bowed lowly to the archdeacon and with affectionate reverence expressed his wish that the warden and miss eleanor were quite well and the doctor's lady he added turning to the archdeacon and the children of plumstead and my lord and having made his speech he also retired among the others and took his place with the rest upon the stone benches as the archdeacon stood up to make his speech erect in the middle of that little square he looked like an ecclesiastical statue placed there as a fitting impersonation of the church militant here on earth his shovel hat large new and well pronounced a churchman's hat in every inch declared the profession as plainly as does the quaker's broad brim his heavy eyebrows large open eyes and full mouth and chin expressed the solidity of his order 
the broad chest amply covered with fine cloth told how well to do was its estate one hand ensconced within his pocket evinced the practical hold which our mother church keeps on her temporal possessions and the other loose for action was ready to fight if need be in her defence and below these the decorous breeches and neat black gaiters showing so admirably that well-turned leg betokened the decency the outward beauty and grace of our church establishment now my men he began when he had settled himself well in his position i want to say a few words to you your good friend the warden here and myself and my lord the bishop on whose behalf i wish to speak to you would all be very sorry very sorry indeed that you should have any just ground of complaint any just ground of complaint on your part would be removed at once by the warden or by his lordship or by me on his behalf without the necessity of any petition on your part here the orator stopped for a moment expecting that some little murmurs of applause would show that the weakest of the men were beginning to give way but no such murmurs came bunce himself even sat with closed lips mute and unsatisfactory without the necessity of any petition at all he repeated i'm told you have addressed a petition to my lord he paused for a reply from the men and after a while handy plucked up the courage and said yes we has you have addressed a petition to my lord in which as i'm informed you express an opinion that you do not receive from hiram's estate all that is your due here most of the men expressed their assent now what is it you ask for what is it you want that you haven't got here what is it a hundred a year muttered old moody with a voice as if it came out of the ground a hundred a year ejaculated the archdeacon militant defying the impudence of these claimants with one hand stretched out and closed while with the other he tightly grasped and secured within his breeches pocket that symbol of the church's wealth which his own loose half-crowns not unaptly represented a hundred a year why my men you must be mad and you talk about john hiram's will when john hiram built a hospital for worn-out old men worn-out old laboring men infirm old men past their work cripples blind bedridden and such like do you think he meant to make gentlemen of them do you think john hiram intended to give a hundred a year to old single men who earned perhaps two shillings or half a crown a day for themselves and families in the best of their time no my men i'll tell you what john hiram meant he meant that twelve poor old worn-out laborers men who could no longer support themselves who had no friends to support them who must starve and perish miserably if not protected by the hand of charity he meant that twelve such men as these should come in here in their poverty and wretchedness and find within these walls shelter and food before their death and a little leisure to make their peace with god that was what john hiram meant you have not read john hiram's will and i doubt whether those wicked men who are advising you have done so i have i know what his will was and i tell you that that was his will and that that was his intention 
Not a sound came from the eleven bedesmen, as they sat listening to what, according to the archdeacon, was their intended estate. They grimly stared upon his burly figure, but did not then express by word or sign the anger and disgust to which such language was sure to give rise. "'Now let me ask you,' he continued, "'do you think you are worse off than John Hiram intended to make you? "'Have you not shelter and food and leisure? "'Have you not much more? "'Have you not every indulgence which you are capable of enjoying? "'Have you not twice better food, twice a better bed, "'and ten times more money in your pocket "'than you were ever able to earn for yourselves "'before you were lucky enough to get into this place?' And now you send a petition to the bishop asking for a hundred pounds a year. I tell you what, my friends, you are deluded and made fools of by wicked men who are acting for their own ends. You will never get a hundred pence a year more than what you have now. It is very possible that you may get less. It is very possible that my lord the bishop and your warden may make changes. No, no, no interrupted Mr. Harding, who had been listening with indescribable misery to the tirade of his son-in-law. "'No, my friends, I want no changes, at least no changes that shall make you worse off than you are now, as long as you and I live together.' "'God bless you, Mr. Harding,' said Bunce, and "'God bless you, Mr. Harding, God bless you, sir, we know you was always our friend,' was exclaimed by enough of the men to make it appear that the sentiment was general." The archdeacon had been interrupted in his speech before he had quite finished it, but he felt that he could not recommence with dignity after this little ebullition, and he led the way back into the garden, followed by his father-in-law. "'Well,' said he, as soon as he found himself within the cool retreat of the warden's garden, "'I think I spoke to them plainly,' and he wiped the perspiration from his brow, for making a speech under a broiling midday sun in summer— in a full suit of thick black cloth, is warm work. "'Yes, you were plain enough,' replied the warden, in a tone which did not express approbation. "'And that's everything,' said the other, who was clearly well satisfied with himself. "'That's everything. With those sort of people one must be plain, or one will not be understood. Now, I think they did understand me. I think they knew what I meant.' The warden agreed. He certainly thought they had understood to the full what had been said to them. They know pretty well what they have to expect from us. They know how we shall meet any refractory spirit on their part. They know that we're not afraid of them. And now I'll just step into Chadwick's and tell him what I've done, and then I'll go up to the palace and answer this petition of theirs. The warden's mind was very full, full nearly to overcharging itself, and had it done so, had he allowed himself to speak the thoughts which were working within him, he would indeed have astonished the archdeacon by the reprobation he would have expressed as to the proceeding of which he had been so unwilling a witness. But different feelings kept him silent. He was as yet afraid of differing from his son-in-law. He was anxious beyond measure to avoid even a semblance of rupture with any of his order, and was painfully fearful of having to come to an open quarrel with any person on any subject. His life had hitherto been so quiet, so free from strife. His little early troubles had required nothing but passive fortitude. His subsequent prosperity had never forced upon him any active cares, had never brought him into disagreeable contact with anyone. 
he felt that he would give almost anything, much more than he knew he ought to do, to relieve himself from the storm which he feared was coming. It was so hard that the pleasant waters of his little stream should be disturbed and muddied by rough hands, that his quiet paths should be made a battlefield, that the unobtrusive corner of the world which had been allotted to him as though by providence should be invaded and desecrated, and all within it made miserable and unsound. Money he had none to give. The knack of putting guineas together had never belonged to him. But how willingly, with what a foolish easiness, and with what happy alacrity would he have abandoned the half of his income for all time to come, could he by so doing have quietly dispelled the clouds that were gathering over him? Could he have thus compromised the matter between the reformer and the conservative, between his possible son-in-law, Bold, and his positive son-in-law, the archdeacon? and this compromise would not have been made from any prudential motive of saving what would yet remain, for Mr. Harding still felt little doubt, but he should be left for life in quiet possession of the good things he had, if he chose to retain them. No, he would have done so from the sheer love of quiet, and from a horror of being made the subject of public talk. He had very often been moved to pity, to that inward weeping of the heart for others' woes, but none had he ever pitied more than that old lord, whose almost fabulous wealth, drawn from his church preferments, had become the subject of so much opprobrium, of such public scorn, that wretched clerical octogenarian Croesus, whom men would not allow to die in peace, whom all the world united to decry and to abhor. Was he to suffer such a fate? Was his humble name to be bandied in men's mouths as the gormandizer of the resources of the poor, as one who had filched from the charity of other ages wealth which had been intended to relieve the old and the infirm? Was he to be gibbeted in the press, to become a byword for oppression, to be named as an example of the greed of the English church? Should it ever be said that he had robbed those old men, whom he so truly and so tenderly loved in his heart of hearts, as he slowly paced hour after hour under those noble lime-trees, turning these sad thoughts within him, he became all but fixed in his resolve that some great step must be taken to relieve him from the risk of so terrible a fate. In the meanwhile, the archdeacon, with contented mind and unruffled spirit, went about his business. He said a word or two to Mr. Chadwick, and then finding, as he expected, the petition lying in his father's library, he wrote a short answer to the men, in which he told them that they had no evils to redress, but rather great mercies for which to be thankful. And having seen the bishop sign it, he got into his brigham and returned home to Mrs. Grantley and Plumstead Episcopi. End of chapter 5 Recording by Jessica Louise, St. Paul, Minnesota Chapter Six of the Warden. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Warden by Anthony Trollope. Chapter Six: The Warden's Tea Party. After much painful doubting, on one thing only could Mister Harding resolve. He determined that at any rate he would take no offence, and that he would make this question no cause of quarrel either with Bold or with the Beadsman. 
in furtherance of this resolution he himself wrote a note to mr bold the same afternoon inviting him to meet a few friends and hear some music on an evening named in the next week had not this little party been promised to elinor in his present state of mind he would probably have avoided such gaiety but the promise had been given the invitations were to be written and when elinor consulted her father on the subject she was not ill-pleased to hear him say oh i was thinking of bold so i took it into my head to write to him myself but you must write to his sister mary bold was older than her brother and at the time of our story was just over thirty she was not an unattractive young woman though by no means beautiful her great merit was the kindliness of her disposition she was not very clever nor very animated nor had she apparently the energy of her brother but she was guided by a high principle of right and wrong her temper was sweet and her faults were fewer in number than her virtues those who casually met mary bold thought little of her but those who knew her well loved her well and the longer they knew her the more they loved her among those who were fondest of her was elinor harding and though elinor had never openly talked to her of her brother each understood the other's feelings about him the brother and sister were sitting together when the two notes were brought in how odd said mary that they should send two notes well if mr harding becomes fashionable the world is going to change her brother understood immediately the nature and intention of the peace offering but it was not so easy for him to behave well in the matter as it was for mr harding it is much less difficult for the sufferer to be generous than for the oppressor john bold felt that he could not go to the warden's party he never loved elinor better than he did now he had never so strongly felt how anxious he was to make her his wife as now when so many obstacles to his doing so appeared in view yet here was her father himself as it were clearing away those very obstacles and still he felt that he could not go to the house any more as an open friend as he sat thinking of these things with the note in his hand his sister was waiting for his decision well said she i suppose we must write separate answers and we'll both say we shall be very happy you'll go of course mary said he to which she readily assented i cannot he continued looking serious and gloomy i wish i could with all my heart and why not john said she she had as yet heard nothing of the new-found abuse which her brother was about to reform at least nothing which connected it with her brother's name he sat thinking for a while till he determined that it would be best to tell her at once what it was he was about it must be done sooner or later i fear i cannot go to mr harding's house any more as a friend just at present oh john why not oh you've quarrelled with elinor no indeed said he i've no quarrel with her as yet what is it john said she looking at him with an anxious loving face for she knew well how much of his heart was there in that house which he had said he could no longer enter why he said at last i've taken up the case of these twelve old men of hiram's hospital and of course that brings me into contact with mr harding i may have to oppose him inter interfere with him perhaps injure him mary looked at him steadily for some time before she committed herself to reply and then merely asked him what he meant to do for the old men 
Well, it's a long story, and I don't know that I can make you understand it. Uh, John Hiram made a will and left his property in charity for certain poor old men, and the proceeds, instead of going to the benefit of these men, go chiefly into the pocket of the warden and the bishop's steward. And you mean to take away from Mr. Harding his share of it? I don't know what I mean yet. I mean to inquire about it. I mean to see who is entitled to this property. I mean to see, if I can, that justice be done to the poor of the city of Barchester generally, who are in fact the legatees under the will. I mean, in short, to put the matter right, if I can. And why are you to do this, John? You might ask the same question of anybody else, said he, and according to that, the duty of righting these poor men would belong to nobody. If we are to act on that principle, the weak are never to be protected, injustice is never to be opposed, and no one is to struggle for the poor. And Bold began to comfort himself in the warmth of his own virtue. But is there no one to do this but you, who have known Mr. Harding so long? Surely, John, as a friend, as a young friend, so much younger than Mr. Harding. That's woman's logic all over, Mary. What has age to do with it? Another man might plead that he was too old, and as to his friendship, if the thing itself be right, private motives should never be allowed to interfere. Because I esteem Mr. Harding, is that a reason that I should neglect a duty which I owe to these old men? Or should I give up a work which my conscience tells me is a good one, because I regret the loss of his society? And Eleanor, John, said the sister, looking timidly into her brother's face. Eleanor, that, that is Miss Harding, if she thinks fit, that is if her father, or rather if she, or indeed he, if they find it necessary, but there's no necessity now to talk about Eleanor Harding. But this I will say, that if she has the kind of spirit for which I give her credit, she will not condemn me for doing what I think to be a duty. And Bold consoled himself with the consolation of a Roman. Mary sat silent for a while, till at last her brother reminded her that the notes must be answered, and she got up and placed her desk before her, took out her pen and paper, wrote on it slowly. Packenham Villas, Tuesday morning. My dear Eleanor, I and then stopped and looked at her brother. "'Well, Mary, why don't you write it?' "'Oh, John,' she said. "'Dear John, pray think better of this.' "'Think better of what?' said he. "'Of this, about the hospital, of all this about Mr. Harding, of what you say about those old men. "'Nothing can call upon you. "'No duty can require you to set yourself against your oldest, your best friend. "'Oh, John, think of Eleanor. "'You'll break her heart.' and your own. Nonsense, Mary, Miss Harding's heart is as safe as yours. Pray, pray, for my sake, John, give it up. You know how dearly you love her. And she came and knelt before him on the rug. Pray, give it up. You're going to make yourself and her and her father miserable. You're going to make us all miserable. And for what? For a dream of justice. You will never make those twelve men happier than they are now. "'You don't understand it, my dear girl,' said he, smoothing her hair with his hand. "'I do understand it, John. I understand that this is a chimera, a dream that you've got. I know well that no duty can require you to do this mad, this suicidal thing. 
i know you love eleanor harding with all your heart and i tell you now that she loves you as well if there was a plain a positive duty before you i would be the last to bid you neglect it for any woman's love but this oh think again before you do anything to make it necessary that you and mr harding should be at a variance he did not answer as she knelt there leaning on his knees but by his face she thought that he was inclined to yield at any rate let me say that you'll go to this party at any rate do not break with them while your mind is in doubt and she got up hoping to conclude her note in the way she desired my mind is not in doubt at last he said rising i could never respect myself again were i to give way now because eleanor harding is beautiful i do love her i would give a hand to hear her tell me what you have said speaking on her behalf but i cannot for her sake go back from the task which i have commenced i hope she may hereafter acknowledge and respect my motives but i cannot now go as a guest to her father's house and the barchester brutus went out to fortify his own resolution by meditations on his own virtue poor mary bold sat down and sadly finished her note saying that she would herself attend the party but that her brother was unavoidably prevented from doing so i fear that she did not admire as she should have done the self-devotion of his singular virtue the party went off as such parties do there were fat old ladies in fine silk dresses and slim young ladies in gauzy muslin frocks old gentlemen stood up with their backs to the empty fireplace looking by no means so comfortable as they would have done in their own armchairs at home and young gentlemen rather stiff about the neck clustered near the door not as yet sufficiently encouraged to attack the muslin frocks who awaited the battle drawn up in a semicircular array the warden endeavoured to induce a charge but failed signally not having the tact of a general his daughter did what she could to comfort the forces under her command who took in refreshing rations of cake and tea and patiently looked for the coming engagement but she herself eleanor had no spirit for the work the only enemy whose lance she cared to encounter was not there and she and others were somewhat dull loud above all voices was heard the clear sonorous tones of the archdeacon as he dilated to brother parsons of the danger of the church of the fearful rumours of mad reforms even at oxford and of the damnable heresies of dr whiston soon however sweeter sounds began timidly to make themselves audible little movements were made in a quarter notable for round stools and music stands wax candles were arranged in sconces big books were brought from hidden recesses and the work of the evening commenced how often were those pegs twisted and retwisted before our friend found that he had twisted them enough how many discordant scrapes gave promise of the coming harmony how much the muslin fluttered and crumpled before eleanor and another nymph were duly seated at the piano how closely did that tall apollo pack himself against the wall with his flute long as himself extending high over the heads of his pretty neighbours into how small a corner crept that round and florid little minor cannon and there with skill amazing found room to tune his accustomed fiddle and now the crash begins away they go in full flow of harmony together up hill and down dale now louder and louder then lower and lower now loud as though stirring the battle 
then low as though mourning the slain in all through all and above all is heard the violoncello ah not for nothing were those pegs so twisted and retwisted listen listen now alone the saddest of instruments tells its touching tale silent and in awe stand fiddle flute and piano to hear the sorrows of their wailing brother tis but for a moment before the melancholy of those low notes has been fully realized again comes the full force of all the band down go the pedals away rush twenty fingers scouring over the bass notes with all the impetus of passion apollo blows till his stick neckcloth is no better than a rope and the minor cannon works with both arms till he falls in a syncope of exhaustion against the wall how comes it that now when all should be silent when courtesy if not taste should make men listen how is it at this moment the black-coated corps leave their retreat and begin skirmishing one by one they creep forth and fire off little guns timidly and without precision ah oh, my men efforts such as these will take no cities even though the enemy should be never so open to assault at length the more deadly artillery is brought to bear slowly but with effect the advance is made the muslin ranks are broken and fall into confusion the formidable array of chairs gives way the battle is no longer between opposing regiments but hand to hand and foot to foot with single combatants as in the glorious days of old when fighting was really noble in corners and under the shadow of curtains behind sofas and half hidden by doors in retiring windows and sheltered by hanging tapestry are blows given and returned fatal incurable dealing death apart from this another combat arises more sober and more serious the archdeacon is engaged against two prebendaries a percy full-blown rector assisting him in all the perils and all the enjoyments of short whist with solemn energy do they watch the shuffled pack and all expectant eye the coming trump with what anxious nicety do they arrange their cards jealous of each other's eyes why is that lean doctor so slow cadaverous man with hollow jaw and sunken eye ill beseeming the richness of his mother church oh, why so slow thou meagre doctor see how the archdeacon speechless in his agony deposits on the board his cards and looks to heaven or to the ceiling for support hark how he sighs as with thumbs in his waistcoat pocket he seems to signify that the end of such torment is not yet even nigh at hand vain is the hope if hope there be to disturb that meagre doctor with care precise he places every card weighs well the value of each mighty ace each guarded king and comfort-giving queen speculates on knave and ten counts all his suits and sets his price upon the whole at length a card is led and quick three others fall upon the board the little doctor leads again while with lustrous eye his partner absorbs the trick now thrice has this been done thrice has constant fortune favoured the brace of prebendaries ere the archdeacon rouses himself to the battle but at the fourth assault he pins to the earth a prostrate king laying low his crown and sceptre bushy beard and lowering brow with the poor deuce as david did goliath says the archdeacon pushing over the four cards to his partner then a trump is led then another trump then a king and then an ace and then a long ten which brings down from the meagre doctor his only remaining tower of strength 
his cherished queen of trumps. "'What, no second club?' says the archdeacon to his partner. "'Only one club,' mutters from his inmost stomach the Percy Rector, who sits there red-faced, silent, impervious, careful, a safe but not a brilliant ally. But the archdeacon cares not for many clubs or for none. He dashes out his remaining cards with a speed most annoying to his antagonists, pushes over to them some four cards as their allotted portion, shoves the remainder across the table to the red-faced rector, calls out, two by cards and two by honors and the odd trick last time, marks a treble under the candlestick, and has dealt round the second pack before the meagre doctor has calculated his losses. And so went off the warden's party, and men and women arranging shawls and shoes declared how pleasant it had been, and Mrs. Goodenough, the red-faced rector's wife, pressing the warden's hand, declared she had never enjoyed herself better, which showed how little pleasure she allowed herself in this world, as she had sat the whole evening through in the same chair without occupation, not speaking, and unspoken to. And Matilda Johnson, when she allowed young Dixon of the bank to fasten her cloak round her neck, thought that two hundred pounds a year in a little cottage would really do for happiness. Besides, he was sure to be manager some day, and Apollo, folding his flute into his pocket, felt that he had acquitted himself with honor, and the archdeacon pleasantly jingled his gains. But the meagre doctor went off without much audible speech, muttering ever and anon as he went, Three and thirty points, three and thirty points. And so they all were gone, and Mr. Harding was left alone with his daughter. What had passed between Eleanor Harding and Mary Bold need not be told. It is indeed a matter of thankfulness that neither the historian nor the novelist hears all that is said by their heroes or heroines, or how would three volumes or twenty suffice? In the present case so little of this sort have I overheard, that I live in hopes of finishing my work within three hundred pages, and of completing that pleasant task, a novel in one volume. But something had passed between them and as the warden blew out the wax candles and put his instrument into its case, his daughter stood sad and thoughtful by the empty fireplace, determined to speak to her father, but irresolute as to what she would say. "'Well, Eleanor,' said he, "'are you for bed?' "'Yes,' she said, moving. "'I suppose so, but, Papa, Mr. Bold was not here to-night. Do you know why not?' "'He was asked. I wrote to him myself,' said the warden. "'But do you know why he did not come, Papa?' "'Well, Eleanor, I, I could guess, but it's no use guessing at such things, my dear. "'What makes you look so earnest about it?' "'Oh, Papa, do tell me,' she exclaimed, throwing her arms round him and looking into his face. "'What is he going to do? What is it all about? Is there any—any—any—' "'She didn't know what word to use.' any danger danger my dear what sort of danger danger to you danger of trouble and of loss and of oh papa why haven't you told me of all this before mr harding was not the man to judge harshly of any one much less of the daughter whom he now loved better than any living creature but still he did judge her wrongly at this moment he knew that she loved john bold he fully sympathized in her affection. 
day after day he thought more of the matter and with the tender care of a loving father tried to arrange in his own mind how matters might be so managed that his daughter's heart should not be made the sacrifice to the dispute which was likely to exist between him and bold now when she spoke to him for the first time on the subject it was natural that he should think more of her than of himself and that he should imagine that her own cares and not his were troubling her he stood silent before her a while as she gazed up into his face and then kissing her forehead he placed her on the sofa tell me nelly he said he only called her nelly in his kindest softest sweetest moods and yet all his moods were kind and sweet tell me nelly do you like mr bold much she was quite taken aback by the question i will not say that she had forgotten herself and her own love in thinking about john bold and while conversing with mary she certainly had not done so she had been sick at heart to think that a man of whom she could not but own to herself that she loved him of whose regard she had been so proud that such a man should turn against her father to ruin him she had felt her vanity hurt that his affection for her had not kept him from such a course had he really cared for her he would not have risked her love by such an outrage but her main fear had been for her father and when she spoke of danger it was of danger to him and not to herself she was taken aback by the question altogether do i like him papa yes nelly do you like him why shouldn't you like him but that's a poor word do do you love him she sat still in his arms without answering him she certainly had not prepared herself for an avowal of affection intending as she had done to abuse john bold herself and to hear her father do so also come my love said he let us make a clean breast of it do you tell me what concerns yourself and i will tell you what concerns me in the hospital and then without waiting for an answer he described to her as best he could the accusation that was made about hiram's will the claims which the old men put forward what he considered the strength and what the weaknesses of his own position the course which bold had taken and that which he presumed he was about to take and then by degrees without further question he presumed on the fact of Eleanor's love, and spoke of that love as a feeling which he could in no way disapprove. He apologized for Bold, excused what he was doing, nay, praised him for his energy and intentions, made much of his good qualities, and harped on none of his foibles. Then, reminding his daughter how late it was, and comforting her with much assurance which he hardly felt himself, he sent her to her room with flowing eyes and a full heart. When Mr. Harding met his daughter at breakfast the next morning, there was no further discussion on the matter, nor was the subject mentioned between them for some days. Soon after the party, Mary Bold called at the hospital, but there were various persons in the drawing-room at the time, and she therefore said nothing about her brother. On the day following, John Bold met Miss Harding in one of the quiet, sombre, shaded walks of the close. He was most anxious to see her, but unwilling to call at the warden's house, and had in truth waylaid her in her private haunts my sister tells me that you had a delightful party the other evening i was so sorry i could not be there we were all sorry said eleanor with dignified composure i believe miss harding you understand why at, at this moment 
and Bold hesitated, muttered, stopped, commenced his explanation again, and again broke down. Eleanor would not help him in the least. "'I think my sister explained to you, Miss Harding?' "'Pray don't apologize, Mr. Bold. My father will, I am sure, always be glad to see you if you like to come to the house now as formerly. Nothing has occurred to alter his feelings. Of your own views you are, of course, the best judge.' "'Your father is all that is kind and generous. He always was so. But you, Miss Harding, yourself, I hope you will not judge me harshly, because Mr. Bold,' said she, "'you may be sure of one thing. I shall always judge my father to be right, and those who oppose him I shall judge to be wrong. If those who do not know him oppose him, I shall have charity enough to believe that they are wrong through error of judgment.' but should I see him attacked by those who ought to know him and to love him and revere him, of such I shall be constrained to form a different opinion. And then curtsying low she sailed on, leaving her lover in anything but a happy state of mind. End of chapter 6 Recording by Jessica Louise, St. Paul, Minnesota Chapter 7 of The Warden. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Warden by Anthony Trollope. Chapter 7. The Jupiter. Though Eleanor Harding rode off from John Bold on a high horse, it must not be supposed that her heart was so elate as her demeanor. In the first place, she had a natural repugnance to losing her lover, and in the next, she was not quite so sure that she was in the right as she pretended to be. Her father had told her, and that now repeatedly, that Bold was doing nothing unjust or ungenerous. And why then should she rebuke him and throw him off, when she felt herself so ill able to bear his loss? But such is human nature, and young lady nature especially. As she walked off from him beneath the shady elms of the close, her look, her tone, every motion and gesture of her body belied her heart. She would have given the world to have taken him by the hand, to have reasoned with him, persuaded him, cajoled him, coaxed him out of his project, to have overcome him with all her female artillery, and to have redeemed her father at the cost of herself. But pride would not let her do this, and she left him without a look of love or a word of kindness. Had Bold been judging of another lover and another lady, he might have understood all this as well as we do but in matters of love men do not see clearly in their own affairs. They say that faint heart never won fair lady, and it is amazing to me how fair ladies are won. So faint are often men's hearts. Were it not for the kindness of their nature that, seeing the weakness of our courage, they will occasionally descend from their impregnable fortresses and themselves aid us in effecting their own defeat, too often would they escape unconquered if not unscathed, and free of body if not of heart. Poor Bold crept off quite crestfallen. He felt that as regarded Eleanor Harding his fate was sealed, unless he could consent to give up a task to which he had pledged himself, and which, indeed, it would not be easy for him to give up. 
lawyers were engaged, and the question had to a certain extent been taken up by the public. Besides, how could a high-spirited girl like Eleanor Harding really learn to love a man for neglecting a duty which he assumed? Could she allow her affection to be purchased at the cost of his own self-respect? As regarded the issue of his attempt at reformation in the hospital, Bold had no reason hitherto to be discontented with his success. All Barchester was by the ears about it. The bishop, the archdeacon, the warden, the steward, and several other clerical allies had daily meetings, discussing their tactics and preparing for the great attack. Sir Abraham Haphazard had been consulted, but his opinion was not yet received. Copies of Hiram's will, copies of warden's journals, copies of leases, copies of accounts, copies of everything that could be copied, and of some that could not, had been sent to him and the case was assuming most creditable dimensions. But above all, it had been mentioned in the Daily Jupiter, that all-powerful organ of the press in one of its leading thunderbolts launched at St. Cross, had thus remarked, Another case, of smaller dimensions indeed, but of similar import, is now likely to come under public notice. We are informed that the warden or master of an old almshouse attached to Barchester Cathedral is in receipt of twenty-five times the annual income appointed for him by the will of the founder, while the sum yearly expended on the absolute purposes of the charity has always remained fixed. In other words, the legatees under the founder's will have received no advantage from the increase in the value of property during the last four centuries, such increase having been absorbed by the so-called warden. It is impossible to conceive a case of greater injustice. It is no answer to say that some six or nine or twelve old men receive as much of the goods of this world as such old men require. On what foundation? moral or divine, traditional or legal, is grounded the warden's claim to the large income he receives for doing nothing. The contentment of these almsmen, if content they be, can give him no title to this wealth. Does he ever ask himself, when he stretches wide his clerical palm to receive the pay of some dozen of the working clergy, for what service he is so remunerated? Does his conscience ever entertain the question of his right to such subsidies? Or is it possible that the subject never so presents itself to his mind, that he has received for many years, and intends, should God spare him, to receive for years to come these fruits of the industrious piety of past ages, indifferent as to any right on his own part, or of any injustice to others? We must express an opinion that nowhere but in the Church of England, and only there among its priests, could such a state of moral indifference be found." I must, for the present, leave my readers to imagine the state of Mr. Harding's mind after reading the above article. They say that 40,000 copies of the Jupiter are daily sold, and that each copy is read by five persons at the least. 200,000 readers, then, would hear this accusation against him. 200,000 hearts would swell with indignation at the griping injustice, the bare-faced robbery of the warden of Barchester Hospital. And how was he to answer this? How was he to open his inmost heart to this multitude, to these thousands, the educated, the polished, the picked men of his own country? How show them that he was no robber, no avaricious lazy priest scrambling for gold, 
but a retiring, humble-spirited man who had innocently taken what had innocently been offered to him. Write to the Jupiter, suggested the bishop. Yes, said the archdeacon, more worldly wise than his father. Yes, and be smothered with ridicule, tossed over and over again with scorn, shaken this way and that, as a rat in the mouth of a practiced terrier. You will leave out some word or letter in your answer, and the ignorance of the cathedral clergy will be harped upon. You will make some small mistake which will be a falsehood, or some admission which will be self-condemnation. You will find yourself to have been vulgar, ill-tempered, irreverent, and illiterate, and the chances are ten to one, but that being a clergyman you will have been guilty of blasphemy. A man may have the best of causes, the best of talents, and the best of tempers. He may write as well as Addison or as strongly as Junius. But even with all this, he cannot successfully answer when attacked by the Jupiter. In such matters, it is omnipotent. What the Tsar is in Russia or the mob in America, that the Jupiter is in England. Answer such an article. No, Warden, whatever you do, don't do that. We were to look for this sort of thing, you know, but we need not draw down on our heads more of it than is necessary. The article in the Jupiter, while it so greatly harassed our poor warden, was an immense triumph to some of the opposite party. Sorry as Bold was to see Mr. Harding attacked so personally, it still gave him a feeling of elation to find his cause taken up by so powerful an advocate. And as to Finney, the attorney, he was beside himself. What? To be engaged in the same cause and on the same side with the Jupiter, to have the views he had recommended seconded and furthered and battled for by the Jupiter, perhaps to have his own name mentioned as that of the learned gentleman whose efforts had been so successful on behalf of the poor of Barchester. He might be examined before committees of the House of Commons with heaven knows how much a day for his personal expenses. He might be engaged for years on such a suit. There was no end to the glorious golden dreams which this leader in the Jupiter produced in the soaring mind of Finney. And the old beadsmen, they also heard of this article, and had a glimmering, indistinct idea of the marvellous advocate which had now taken up their cause. Abel Handy limped hither and thither through the rooms, repeating all that he understood to have been printed, with some additions of his own which he thought should have been added. He told him how the Jupiter had declared that their warden was no better than a robber, and that what the Jupiter said was acknowledged by the world to be true. How the Jupiter had affirmed that each one of them, each one of us, Jonathan Crumple, think of that, had a clear right to a hundred a year, and that if the Jupiter had said so, it was better than a decision of the Lord Chancellor. And then he carried about the paper, supplied by Mr. Finney, which, though none of them could read it, still afforded in its very touch and aspect positive corroboration of what was told them. And Jonathan Crumple pondered deeply over his returning wealth, and Job Sculpit saw how right he had been in signing the petition, and said so many scores of times, and Spriggs leered fearfully with his one eye and Moody, as he more nearly approached the coming golden age, hated more deeply than ever those who still kept possession of what he so coveted. Even Billy Gazy and poor bedridden Bell became active and uneasy, and the great Bunce stood apart with lowering brow, with deep grief seated in his heart, for he perceived that evil days were coming. 
It had been decided, the archdeacon advising, that no remonstrance, explanation, or defense should be addressed from the Barchester conclave to the editor of the Jupiter. But hitherto that was the only decision to which they had come. Sir Abraham Haphazard was deeply engaged in preparing a bill for the mortification of papists, to be called the Covent Custody Bill the purport of which was to enable any protestant clergyman over fifty years of age to search any nun whom he suspected of being in possession of treasonable papers or jesuitical symbols and as there were to be a hundred and thirty-seven clauses in the bill each clause containing a separate thorn for the side of the papist and as it was known the bill would be fought inch by inch by fifty maddened irishmen the due construction and adequate dovetailing of it did consume much of Sir Abraham's time. The bill had all its desired effect. Of course it never passed into law, but it so completely divided the ranks of the Irish members, who had bound themselves together to force on the ministry of a bill for compelling all men to drink Irish whiskey, and all women to wear Irish poplins, that for the remainder of the session the great poplin and whiskey league was utterly harmless. Thus it happened that Sir Abraham's opinion was not at once forthcoming, and the uncertainty, the expectation, and suffering of the folk of Barchester was maintained at a high pitch. End of chapter 7 Recording by Jessica Louise, St. Paul, Minnesota